You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Man, thank you ladies for that beautiful song. Thankful uh, for songwriters uh, that have a gift like that to convey a truth in a way that uh, just kind of settles it all for you in the moment. I mean, you just know as you hear a song like that, it just is a reminder, it's true, uh, that even in a valley, God is still good to us. We can't lose sight of that. And I'm thankful uh, for the, the message and song today. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning and jumping into the message today. John chapter 6, and if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to take it at home and open it to John 6, and for those in here as well. And as you're looking for that passage, if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of the reading of the Scripture today, we're going to, uh, just out of respect of God's Word, I do like to stand when we can as we read it. I think that's a, there's a biblical precedent for that. If you can do that at home, I think it's a good practice as well uh, to stand and just uh, show respect to God's Word. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're going to read down through verse 13, and this is one of those very familiar stories. I'm sure uh, most, of, uh, most of us in here, most, many of you at home have heard this story, and uh, you'll recognize it as we start going through it. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain... And there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philippian, or, sorry, Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Now I have to stop right here and say, as a kid, my mind goes back to junior church or to a Sunday school classroom, and I see flannel graph, and I see a multitude of people on the hillside, and I see Jesus and his 12 disciples, and there's a little boy. Do you see it? Are you picturing this with me? There's a little boy on the flannel graph, and he's got five loaves of bread and two fishes, and he's handing that lunch to Jesus Christ. And as a kid, I, I used to try to put myself in the Bible story, but there was no story more relatable, relatable to me as a little boy than this story right here. In my mind, I always imagined if I was the boy on the hillside, I would have given my lunch to Jesus and let him give it to all the rest. That's the way I envision it. I love stories like this. And parents, we need to tell stories like this to our children and let them imagine and envision what's going on. I love the story. And then he takes this lunch from this boy. Look what he does with it in verse 10. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. 
When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. So he took this little lunch from this little boy, five loaves and two fishes, and he starts to distribute it, and it suddenly begins multiplying to the the effect that all of the people on the hillside got to eat, and there were leftovers even. What an incredible miracle. Look at verse 13. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. What a great story. And there's a lot to be learned. There's a lot of things we could learn through this. We could take it from the young boy's perspective and that we should give what we have to Jesus and let him use it. Uh, we, could, we could take it from um, any perspective. I mean, you could talk about uh, missions. You could talk about serving. You could talk about uh, giving your life to God. There are a lot of things we could, we could take this from. But today I want to look at it from the, from the angle of the disciples and how the disciples were missing something here and they had a lesson to learn. And it's a lesson I think that we all could learn as well. I'm calling this today Proof and Promises. Proof and Promises. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you'd help us each to take seriously what you would have for us to learn from it. And I pray that you would use this passage through your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and help us to see how we often look for answers in the wrong places. And yet we have a God who has provided proof and has given promises. And if we would simply start, stop looking to ourselves and look to him, we would realize that he can help us with any trial, with any circumstance, with any scenario. So ask us, Lord, we're asking you, Lord, to give us faith and to help us to take a step in your direction this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. One of the things that stands out to me as I read a passage like this is just how popular Jesus Christ is at this time. This is really the height of his earthly ministry, and he's extremely popular. People were, were clamoring to get to him. And John 6, this, this passage is just another example of that. We find at the beginning of the text that Jesus Christ is sailing from Jerusalem across the Sea of Galilee. And yet that doesn't stop the crowd from following him. Uh, It says that a great multitude went, which means that they were tracking his every move. Even if he was on a boat, they were following him. Wherever he went, they wanted to be there. He couldn't get away from the crowds, even if he had wanted to. And we find out here in verse 2, their primary reason was that they saw his miracles, which he did on them, that were diseased. So either these folks were excited about seeing what Jesus Christ would do next, or they had an ailment, or they were sick, or they had a family member, and they wanted to bring that family member to Jesus so that he could prove himself and his healing powers on their lives. They were coming after him to to see his physical healing abilities. In verse 3 it says, Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. It's almost as if he's looking for a way to, to escape. It's almost as if he's looking for a way to get away and have some time, and that yet that doesn't even stop them. So again, he gets on a boat, they travel across the Sea of Galilee. When he gets to where he's going, he then goes up to the top of a mountain, and the crowds are still following him. Look at verse 5. It says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. So he looks and he, saw, he sees this great company 
Couple that with the, the words great multitude and you start to get the idea. Over in Matthew 14, which is the parallel passage, it states there were 5,000 men, which it says that here as well uh, in this, but it also says beside women and children. So this is not just 5,000 men. This is 5,000 men plus women plus children. And, and I'm not great at math. I would assume there are at least 10,000 people following Jesus as he travels across the sea and even up into a mountaintop. That's how popular he was. That's how many people wanted to see what Jesus Christ was doing. And as you, as you can imagine then, uh, the, this sight quickly overwhelmed the disciples. Especially when they hear what Jesus Christ wants them to do. Look at verse 5. Again, it says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Wow. Most of us would have thought, seriously, uh, we're supposed to feed all of these people and they're trying to count and get a head count? I mean, 5,000 men, probably at least 5,000 women and children on top of that. Just managing a crowd this size would have been overwhelming. And now they've been tasked with feeding a crowd this size. Now, imagine many of them were probably even teenage boys. So it starts to even raise the level of food you require. I mean, there's a lot of food needed to feed 5,000 men and possibly 5,000 women and children and then throw in all the hungry teenagers. I mean, you start to think about this. Imagine a sporting event, and you're in, a, in an arena that seats 15,000 people, and someone comes up to you and says, okay, um, we need to figure out a plan to feed all of these people. That's what Jesus is asking them to do. And the way he asks them is a test of their faith. He basically asks them, where could we find a resource that's able to take care of a need this big? Now, I imagine how he asked the question. Do you think he was asking like this? You think he's wringing his hands and saying, Philip, Philip, I, I need your help, Philip. Uh, where could we go buy bread? No, I don't think that's the way he's asking it. Do you think that he's looking around and saying, um, Philip, what are we supposed to do? Do you think he's pulling his phone out and he's on Yelp? Uh, where, where are we going to find some place to eat? Where's the closest place? No, that's not the way he's asking. Here's how my imagination runs wild when I think about this question. Here's how Jesus, I believe, was asking, and really just figuratively, here's what Jesus was likely doing in my, in my brain. Hey, Philip, where do you think we should look to go find a resource that could feed all of these people? Now, I know he wasn't making that gesture, but we find out that his intention was to, was to test Philip his intention and hope would, that, would be that Philip's answer would say, well, you, Lord, of course. I mean, Jesus, I mean, if it was me, I would have hoped that I would have answered like that. I mean, if Jesus was kind of dropping the hint, where do you think we should go to find food for all of these people, Philip? I would have hoped that I would have caught on to what he was asking. Well, Philip obviously doesn't. It says this in verse 6. This he said to prove him, for he knew, himself knew what he would do. He already knew what Philip's answer would be, and Philip's answer did not include Jesus. His, his answer should have been, Lord, if you would simply exert a little bit of your power on this situation, we don't need to go buy bread. 
God, you can do this. That's what should have been said, but that's not what happened. The disciples fail this test that Jesus is proving them with. Their first response, we actually find if you go to Matthew 14, and I don't, I don't have you turn there, but if you go over to Matthew 14, it says, when it was evening, the, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals." So we actually know that the disciples, their first response in this situation, they see 5,000, 10,000 people plus coming to hear Jesus and it's supper time. Their first response to Jesus was, Jesus, send them away. Let them go to the villages. Let them go get their own victuals and their own food. Their answer to the problem was, it's dinner time, send them away. But John also gives us this exchange between Philip and Jesus. And I imagine that Jesus asked Philip the question, that after Jesus asked Philip the question, that, that Philip then, rather than looking to Jesus and saying, what should we do? Or stopping to think about what he should do. It sounds to me like he immediately runs to the other disciples to see how much money they have. Have you ever been in that situation? I think about it's happened to me many times where you're driving on a toll road and you get up to the toll booth, you don't realize that there was even a toll booth coming up and you realize you don't have a, a, a pass and, and you've got to find some change in the car real quick and you're frantically searching in all the seats and you're trying to scrounge up any money that you can. That's the way I envision this happening. Philip comes to the disciples and he says, um, Jesus wants us to feed the 5,000 he wants us to feed these 10,000 plus. And what are we supposed to do? Uh, Peter, check your pockets. Uh, Thomas, check, check your pocket. Um, Judas, open the bag because we know Judas was the treasurer. We know that Judas um, holds the bag. It means he oversees the money for Jesus and the disciples. And they're, start, they're looking through everything. And, we find, and the reason I believe that's what happened is in verse 7, Philip comes back and Philip answered him and says, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. So he comes back with a number. And if it, for him to come back with a number means that he would have had to have known how much was available among all the disciples. And 200 penny worth would have been a good sum of money. Many commentators in that day said it could have fed 2,000 people, which sounds like a lot until you remember that there are 5,000 men alone. Philip knows that whatever they have is insufficient. And this response, coupled with their request to send the multitude away, makes you think they have lost sight of the power of Jesus Christ. They're not thinking about his power at all. As a matter of fact, let me reread Matthew 14, 15 and read it with certain inflection. And it says, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. That's the way that I believe that, and I may be reading into it, but I'm sensing some frustration here. At the very least, they're tired and they're hungry and they have no answers for the request for the, for the multitude uh, that Jesus has asked for them to feed. They don't have a, any answers. But I also want you to analyze what they were saying. They were telling Jesus, send the multitude away. Let them go find their own food. Do you notice they're not asking questions? They're actually making suggestions to Jesus Christ. They're basically telling him what to do in a presumptuous kind of way, as if they know what's best to do in the situation. Now, again, in fairness, 
I could see how the situation might turn into something negative very soon. Have you ever had to feed a bunch of uh, hungry people all at once? I mean, I don't know, maybe you've heard the term hangry. Have you ever been hangry before? Where you're so hungry, you're angry about it? You don't really know why? Now, I've been hangry before. And when I'm hangry, nobody wants to be around me. Now, but think about, now we've got 10,000 hangry people. The disciples are overwhelmed, and they, see, they, hear, they kind of see what could happen if they aren't able to feed these people. It could turn very bad very quickly. From a human perspective, the disciples were kind of justified in feeling uneasy about the situation. But here's their problem. They were talking to Jesus, the Son of God. He's not just some guy. Are they faced with, with a situation they can't control? Yes, absolutely. Are they feeling overwhelmed? Yes, they are. Do they have the resources to fix it in themselves? No, they don't. But the, the person who spoke the universe into existence is standing right in front of them. They could reach out and grab his arm. They could look right into his eyes. They've watched him do all kinds of amazing things. And if anybody should have no doubts about his ability in this situation... It should be these 12. But the disciples were not focusing on what Jesus had done. They were not focusing on who Jesus was. They were focusing on other things, something that we often do. They were focusing on a situation rather than the Savior. They were focusing on conditions instead of Jesus Christ. They were living by fear instead of faith. The questions they were asking were things like, what's going to happen, hand-wringing, how are we going to maintain control of the crowd? There's a lot of hangry people out here. Where are, we going to get, where are we going to get enough food for this? But here are the questions they should have been asking. What do you think Jesus is going to do this time? What, what do you think he's going to do? Because I'm excited to see it. Remember what he did yesterday? Remember that? That was amazing. Do you think he'll do something new that we haven't seen before? Those are the questions they should have been asking. And yet it never occurred to one of them to ask Jesus Christ for his help. They acted as if he wasn't even standing there. Can you imagine the group of disciples over here and they're checking their pockets and they're going through and they're, okay, here's what I got. I got this right here. And okay, I got a few coins here. And all the while, Jesus, the creator of the universe, is standing here. And, I, and again, my imagination runs wild. And I just wonder if he's like, I'm right here. And they're over here frantically searching their pockets and they're searching through the bag and they're trying to f figure something out in this situation and Jesus was watching them the whole time. I mean, it's a silly scenario. I know that sounds like a silly scenario. Uh, it would be like me driving down Bonson Avenue here in Sioux Falls and my car breaking down right in front of the garage where Craig Chambers, Craig Chambers owns it, Heath and Wade, the Chambers boys all, all uh, work there. I mean, Diana probably really runs the whole place, but, you know, the Chambers boys, they kind of keep it going. It would, this would, it would be like if my car, I'm driving down Bonson and my car breaks down right in front of the garage. And so I get out there and like every good red-blooded American, um, even if he's not a mechanic, the first thing you do is you open the hood and at least you look like you know what you're doing. So I open the hood and I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's wrong. I then get on the ground and I crawl underneath my car or my truck and I'm looking at it, acting as if I know. And all the while, just a few feet away, um, Craig and Heath and Wade are looking out the window like, why doesn't he just come and ask us? That's a little bit like what's happening here, folks. 
the creator of the universe is a by, has been reduced to a bystander. He's standing in the background, and these human, in, uh, these human, fallible, limited disciples are trying to figure out how to fix a problem they couldn't solve no matter how hard they tried. The problem is, their resources were never going to be enough. Their pockets were never going to be deep enough. But don't judge, because we do it too. And when circumstances loom large, we very often check our own pockets. I mean, think about the coronavirus and the health scare going on around there. It's a situation that looms large. Your finances right now may, may be struggling. You may have some emotional struggles or some relationship problems. You're overloaded with work or stress and you're weary. You've lost a job and, or you've got a sick parent that you're trying to take care of or, or you've got a sin problem that nobody else knows about and the circumstance looms large and sometimes it looms so large that, that it's larger than the Savior. And the situation is at the forefront while Jesus stands back in the shadows. The conditions are on center stage but we put Jesus back behind the curtains. Fear of the unknown is in the driver's seat but Jesus is sitting in the back. And folks, we've all been there before because we like to walk by sight instead of faith. But, and it's a test of our faith to bring Jesus Christ into focus and let everything else move to the background when we're facing a situation larger than we can handle. But we must learn to do it or we will live our entire lives defeated, completely inadequate, never understanding that God's power was available to help us the whole time. And as I read this story, I found myself wishing that the disciples had done something different. I mean, do you ever do that? Do you ever go through and you read a story and you think, like I said at the beginning, you ever think, I, I, think, I think I would have done something different. I think maybe, maybe I would have been the one that speaks up and says something. And I like to think I would have, but, you know, probably not. There are two things I think the disciples should have done. And things, two things that we can do when we're faced with a situation that looms larger than the Savior. And the first is, remember what he's already done. See, as the disciples were fishing coins out of their pockets and they're checking and seeing if they find anything on the ground, and I wish one of the disciples, just one, I wish one of the disciples had spoken up and said, wait guys, remember what Jesus did just yesterday. Let's ask him. I mean, think about all they had seen Jesus do. They'd watched him heal a man of leprosy. Peter was standing there. Peter had seen Jesus heal his own mother-in-law from her disease. They'd watched him calm a raging sea, and they'd, they had seen him heal somebody who was paralyzed. They'd witnessed him heal a woman who'd been sick for 12 years. They were there when he healed a demon-possessed man in a cemetery. They had seen him raise someone from the dead. They, had, they knew he could change water into wine. He had even helped a man who was an invalid for 38 years, just a chapter before in John chapter 5. They'd seen all of that. They'd been there. They'd watched it. Yet not one of them paused long enough to recall any of it. Just imagine in all this, what if Peter speaks up and says, what should we do? Oh, wait, guys, my mother-in-law. What if John had, just, John had just said, hey, guys, ask Jesus. Remember that guy he healed yesterday? What if Thomas had just said, if he could raise that girl from the dead, 
I have no doubt. Okay, there's a little, little wordplay there. Thomas, I have no doubt if he raised a little girl from the dead that he could feed 5, 10, 15, 20,000 people. No doubt. And we say, but they missed it. And we say, well, that's crazy. How could they be so blind? How could they miss it so badly? And I don't know, but I have to ask myself the question often, how do I miss it so badly? See, trouble comes along in the form of our financial hardship or a problem at work or a relationship. And what do I start doing? I immediately go to my pockets and I see what are my resources? What do I have to help with this? What am I going to do? And then I check my pockets and I say, I don't have enough. My resources are short of what I need. I don't have any answers. Where am I going to turn? All the while, Jesus is standing back there like, I'm right here. He's in the background. And my problem is in the forefront. And it's time they switch places. See, rather than what will he do to help me out of this today, you ought to be thinking, no, what did he do for me yesterday or last week or last month? And I'm not saying we should live in the past, but you know where our faith comes from is remembering what God has done for us before. And if he's done that for me before, he can do it for me again today. Yeah, the problem looms large, but rather than focus on the circumstance, ask a question like this, has he ever come through for me before? Has he ever helped me when money was tight before? Has he helped me when my health problems rose up in the past? Has he ever given me peace when I needed it before? Did he create the universe? Did he send his son to die on a cross? Did he rise from the grave to prove that he can conquer sin, death, and hell? And if your answer to any of those questions is yes, then it is time to stop focusing on what he may or may not do and remember what he's already done in your life. He's already proven it. If you're a child of God, he's already proven himself. And if he did it yesterday, he can do it again today. If the disciples had simply taken the time to recall all the things that they'd seen him do, they wouldn't have suggested that the multitude be sent away. They wouldn't have started looking through their own pockets to find some extra coins. When a problem takes center stage and you realize, you realize your resources won't be enough, stop and list out all the times in your life that God has proven himself to you. If he did it for you last time, why would you search your pockets for resources that weren't enough before? It's amazing what we'll place our trust in. It's amazing what we'll assume will be there for us today because it's always been for a, there for us before. I mean, I'm thinking about this chair right here. You know, I've sat in this chair many times before. I should have warned our cameraman, I'll be moving. I've sat in this chair many times before. You know what I've never once done when I go to sit in this chair? I've never gotten down on my knees and checked the structural integrity of the chair before I sat in it, not once. You know why? Because every time I've sat in it, it's held me up. I'm so glad it didn't break just then. Would have hurt my illustration. But you know, I've sat in this chair many times and not once have, ever, have I ever checked the chair to make sure it would hold me up because it's done it so many times in the past, I don't even think about it. You know, when it's time to sit in this chair, I don't, I don't go looking at the chair and I'm not thinking, I'm not sure it can hold me this time. I, I don't think, okay, yes, it held me last time, but I wonder if it's gonna hold me this time, I'm just not sure. I don't ever look at this chair on Sunday mornings when I go to sit in it 
and think, you know what, I should just build my own chair to, so that I know for sure it's structurally strong and it will hold me up. I don't do that with this chair. And yet Christians do that stuff with God all the time. We look at him and we say, yes, he's helped me before, but I'm not sure he's as strong this time. I'm not sure he's going to come through for me this time. I need to check the chair. Yes, he's done it for me before, but who knows if he's going to do it this time. You know, I, I know he's done it for me before, uh, but I think I need to build my own way out of this. I think I need to check my own pockets. I think I need to look through my, for my own resources to come up with an answer for this. I'm just not sure. And yet, folks, you realize we often live our lives with more faith in items like a chair in our, in our living room than we do faith in God himself. We assume that these things will hold up because they have before. And yet, when it comes to faith in God in a trying circumstance, we're just not sure. It's time to stop placing more faith in a chair than you do in a proven God who has come for, through for you time after time after time. Folks, if he saved you, can he take care of your health? If he rose from the dead, can he provide for your family? If he has given you grace in hard times before, why doubt at this time? The disciples would have done well to remember what Jesus had done. They also, number two, would have been in a better spot if they had simply remembered what he had said. So how, how do you get through these times when circumstances loom large? Well, first you need to stop and remember what God has done. Second, you need to stop and remember what he has said. See, Christ's works were enough to give the disciples confidence, yes, but they also had his words to trust in. You see this? So Christ had done the works, but he had also given them words. Christ had shown them the proof, but he had also given them promises. What had they heard him say? Well, you know, just things like, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Meaning, there, even if I die, I have power over death. When you stop and think about the fact that Jesus Christ has power over death, do I honestly think he can't handle whatever my, my present circumstance is today? They had heard him say things like, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What he was saying in John 5 was that Jesus was saying, I can take a dead soul and I can bring them to life, eternal life. I can make them alive if they will simply hear and believe my word. That was, he was saying, I have power over sin and death. Do you think if just one of the disciples in that moment had said, yes, this is a big deal. There's five, 10,000 plus. But don't you guys remember? Jesus said he could take a dead soul and make him alive. All they have to do is believe and trust in his word. If he could do that for our souls, don't you guys think that he can feed these 5,000 men? If somebody had just remembered his words. I mean, they'd have heard him preach the entire Sermon on the Mount. They had even heard him say in Matthew 6, take no thought saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. They were all sitting there, and they all heard him say that. 
He'd promised to take care of every one of their physical needs. And and they weren't to be anxious. They weren't to be full of care about their needs. They heard these words with their own ears. And yet when this problem arises, they're wringing their hands. They're worrying. They're digging through their pockets, assuming they have enough resources to help. And all they had to do was remember the things that he had said. Folks, when you have a problem too big to handle... Remember what God has said. And I know, I don't, I'm not saying this is name it, claim it. I'm, I'm just telling you that the, if we believe the Bible is true and God has made promises, that his promises apply to us. And rather than wring our hands when we have a tough circumstance, go to his word and simply remember his words. And when you're weak, remember Isaiah 40, 29, that says he giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. When you're afraid, remember Isaiah 41.10, which says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. When you don't know what to do, remember James 1.5 that says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. When you doubt God's love, remember Romans 5, 8, but said, that says, but God committeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you doubt God's love, just remember he's already proven his love. When you feel like you've sinned too much, just remember 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you're feeling like you've sinned too much, it's time to remember his word and he promises all we have to do is confess and he forgives us. When it seems like everybody else has forgotten you and you're all alone and you have no friends left and nobody thinks about you, remember Hebrews 13, 5, where he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. When you think that you can't be saved and your sin is caused the gap between you and God to be far too great. Remember Romans 10, 13, when it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember his word. And when you doubt that God wants your best, remember Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. It's time to stop wringing our hands and checking our pockets and finding help from some other resource and it's time to go back to God's works and God's word. Go back to the fact that he's proven himself through his word, works, and he's promised these things to us. Christ doesn't leave us alone with our resources. We have his works and his word to live by. He's proven himself And he's promised his help. So my question is, why are we still digging through our own pockets? We have his works. We have his word. We have his proof. And we have his promises. The answer is not in your pocket. It's in his proof and his promises. It's not in your pocket. It's in his proof and his promises. And I wonder if while the disciples were digging through their pockets, they're trying to get an answer, Jesus was thinking, hey, remember me. I'm I'm Jesus. I'm the son of God. I'm the creator. 
Stop looking in your pockets and look at me. I wonder how often he has to do that for us. A problem arises and we're wringing our hands and searching for change and it will never be enough. And all the while he stands in the background and he says, remember me. I'm Jesus. Folks, when you face a situation that looms large, don't go to social media. Don't immediately call a friend. Don't automatically start fretting over how it's going to work. Start by asking two questions. One, how has God already proven himself in my life? Look at his works. Two, what has God already promised? Look at his words. How does the story end? Well, we read it already, but I want to read it again. Verse 8. It says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And you know, it's true. What are they? Because our resources are never enough. I mean, 200 penny worth, that's how much cash they had. They have five loaves and two fishes. That's how much food they have, and it's certainly not enough. Our resources are never enough. But continue on, he says, And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. See, our resources are never enough. God is, but God is the only resource we need. Think about it. They had 20 penny worth at the beginning of this process. How much did they have at the end of it? Two, I'm sorry, 200 penny worth. Well, they had 200 penny worth at the end of it too. In other words, God didn't even need their resources. If he wanted to, he could have made the fish and the bread appear out of thin air, but he took it from a little boy with faith rather than these disciples that are trying to dig in their pockets. So our resources are never enough God is the only resource we need, and he supplies in unexpected ways. A boy's lunch? Who would have dreamed that up? I wish I would have been the disciple saying, what do you think he's going to do today? How do you think he's going to do this today? Because, I mean, you know how he did it yesterday. That was pretty cool. But can you imagine? I just wonder what he's going to do. How is he going to take care of this? But nobody was thinking about that, yet they'd seen him supply in unexpected ways countless times. And he does it again, and I'm thankful. So our resources are never enough. God is the only resource we need. God supplies in unexpected ways. And then look at the last one. When God is trusted for the work, he goes above and beyond. Again, he took the loaves and he'd given thanks and he distributed to the disciples. And the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would when they were filled. They didn't just get a bite, they were filled. He said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Listen, when we trust our resources to help us through our circumstances, it never is enough. But when we trust God for his resources in our circumstances, it's overflowing and abundant and it's more than we will ever need. So why would I check my pockets when it'll never be enough? When I serve a God whose pockets are never empty. Folks, this is what you get 
when you ignore your own resources and you operate by the proof of his works and the promises of his word. And I don't know what your circumstance is today. I imagine there's a lot of circumstances brewing in the hearts and minds of people right now. But let me just tell you this, you're not alone. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, has deep pockets. And when we let him take care of our needs, he doesn't just barely give us enough. He gives us more than we need overflowing makes me feel so silly for all the times I've been over searching the couch cushions, checking my pockets, looking under the seat of my car, trying to figure out how to barely scrimp my way through a situation when God's got armfuls of resources that he's waiting to give me if I would simply push all the circumstances to the back and put him right at center stage where he belongs. And today, somebody out there, you've pushed God to the back. And instead of him being in the driver's seat, your emotions are, are running the show. Instead of him being at center stage, your fear is right there. The circumstances are looming larger than the Savior, and it's time to swap that. Put him right back where he belongs, and he'll take care of you, not just barely, but more than you ever imagined that he could. That's what's available to us when we ignore our pockets and operate by the proof of his works and the promises of his word.
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.